Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand. The late Mario Rocco Condello was Australia's ambassador to the Calabrian Mafia and one of the most powerful crooks in the country. Behind every gangland figure, there's a family story. Mario had a brother, Enzo, two years younger, who'd grown up in the exact same circumstances. Enzo had the chance to follow his brother into crime, but instead chose the life of a writer, a poet and a playwright. He's written Roman tragedies and a play about Shakespeare's Dark Lady sonnets. And he has a story that explains the difference between the brothers. On the night Mario was born, his father lost a £20 note in a taxi returning home from the hospital. He later said that losing money on such a night is considered a bad omen in Calabria. Late on June 6, 2006, Mario pulled into his garage at home. A man stepped in from the shadows and shot him four times. His execution is still unsolved and is likely to remain that way. Enzo Condello, your brother was one of the people that I met during the gangland war. He unfortunately was murdered in 2006. Yes. You must have so many memories of Mario. Oh, look, we go back to when we were children back in Calabria. So a lot, a lot of memories, a lot of incidents that happened and right up until his death, yeah. You feel numb for a while, uh, like it's as though it didn't happen. It's an unreality about it. And then slowly over the months it starts sinking in but you still have the memories, and, but then it, it comes back to haunt you every six months, like there's a renewed sort of haunting about it, you know, and, and as you get older, it seems to sort of grow in this sort of uh, strange way, this grief, it sort of, you know. Yeah, and he was such a character. I mean, I'm, the first time I spoke to him, I was struck how different he was. I call him on the phone and he's... It's like, who, what, what, do you, what do you want? What are you bothering me for? And I, and I expected him to say, oh, I'm busy with all kinds of things. He said, listen, I'm running around trying to get school fees for my children. I haven't got enough money. Yeah. And it sounded like, wow, this is what normal people do. Yeah, yeah. On the surface, he was quite normal looking and, you know, like an ex-solicitor and like a businessman, you know. But uh, there's the image and there's the man, you know. There's a, to what you present to society and then what the things that are going on behind the scenes. You had that double life. Yeah. You say he was Tony Soprano before Tony Soprano existed. Explain that. Yes. Well, yeah, he was. I mean, it's amazing because when I saw The Sopranos and I thought, uh, this guy's like Mario and, you know, but Mario was like that 20 years earlier before the show came on, you know, because he was like Soprano. He was a, he was a family man looking after his family and children and wanting the best for them and that's exactly what Mario was like. Mario Condello was one of the leading members of the infamous Carlton Crew, a Melbourne-based crime group that ran rorts like illegal gaming, extortion and loan sharking. Mario was the money man, an expert at laundering black cash. Mario had made such a promising start, a brilliant student admitted to the prestigious Melbourne University Law School. However, young Mario was always more interested in breaking the law than practising it. He was, in fact, groomed from a young age to be a mob lawyer. He got involved with people from the fruit and vegetable market. And they thought, oh, a lawyer, a good thing, you know, to have a lawyer in the family, you know, like helping us out and who can knows what he's doing, you know, the law and finances. And 
So they sort of primed him, you know, got him involved and he got more in mixed up with them. Well, he was he was a bit antisocial even before he was became a lawyer. He even broke into Parliament once with another student to, to steal documents for this guy who gave us you know a thousand dollars or something. Yeah, that's what he told. Me. I said, "You're mad." I mean, you you know, you, if you got caught, you would have lost your law degree. He goes, "Oh, well, you know something." Mario Condello had a special entree to the local mafia because of his family name. The Condello faction is still a force in Calabria today. Now, going right back to the beginning, your family Calabrian. Heritage? Yeah. You've got connections right into the highest echelons of the mafia. Pasquale Condello is yeah, a distant yeah, yeah. cousin, the Il Supremo, who was yeah, yeah, notorious yeah. back yeah, in the 90s in Calabria. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's a cousin and uh, he's, he's head of the Condello clan, which is huge and uh, still is, even though he's in jail. The 70-year-old Pasquale is serving a life sentence in Italy, but his immense wealth means he's still a powerful figure. He's still got a big clan there and... Uh, they deal in cocaine, I think, and there was a war. There were two wars, but uh, the second war in 1985 that lasted six years till 91. I think 600 people died. They did? Uh, 600. Uh, it was a major mafia war, and he was he was right on top of that one because he was involved in it. And there were two factions, I think the Amerti faction and Di Stefano faction and, and the Condello faction. Mario and Enzo's mafia story had begun in Anoia, a village in Calabria in the heart of Condello territory. Mario had been born in Melbourne, but the family returned to Italy and Enzo was born in Anoia. Their father had gone back on his own to set up a base for their eventual return to Melbourne. Enzo writes about life in this ancient village. Mario and I often wandered around the village, exploring all the nooks and crannies, alleys, side streets. He was always leading me to places. He was full of energy, curious, exploring, and me wondering what creek he would lead me up. The village overlooked a vast panorama that to me seemed immensely distant. Beneath a crystal blue sky stretched a mountain chain with a river that ran below, flowing and glittering. Mario and I strayed far and wide in the days when time was green, and I had no idea that there was a bigger world outside of Anoya. I remember my cousin, Charlie Leo, saying he would build a boat of bamboo or bark and we would one day row to a land called Australia. In 1960, when Enzo was six years old, he, Mario and their mother returned to Melbourne to their father who'd set up home in North Carlton. The two boys began to roam the streets of the inner city as they had in Anoya and mingle with members of the street gangs who would later graduate to the organised crime scene. So it was a cultural thing, you know, with this thing with the, the mafia and uh, his connections and all that, you know. But he was a funny man. There were quite a few sides to him, but um, unfortunately the the darker side sort of gained the upper hand. In your early days, you were tight with Mario, you know. I mean, you had connections to the Indraghita. Yeah. The Honoured Society back in Calabria. Yeah, because we went back to 1980 when we were uh, in Calabria where he met up with the mafia people. I didn't sort of join in the discussions, but it was his godfather there and he introduced them to other people and uh, in our village and uh, I don't know what they would discuss because then Murray apparently went there to to try and do this, I, I, I was unaware of it, to try and do this connection with Naples where they were going to export 150,000 copies of prints, Australian art prints for a $2 million 
insurance thing, uh, which happened in Naples. When you uh, say art prints, you mean forgeries? No, no, they were actual copies of original Australian art paintings, 150,000 prints, which were, uh, you bought them for about 50 cents a print and uh, but then had them insured for $2 million to sell to people in Naples, but it was all, uh, apparently it came out that later it was an insurance fraud where they burnt the train in Naples. Uh, the mafia mob, the Camorra, I think, burnt them in Naples in the train station to collect on the insurance. But then it didn't work out because one <laughs> one of the guys here, um, a guy called Joe, he was involved with Mary at the time and informed on him and then it came unstuck. So he didn't get the two million. <laughs> so <laughs> I was one of the directors of the company and that's why I was charged as well. But I didn't know anything about it. He, he just put me as a nominal director because at the time he needed two directors, you know. At the same time as Mario was working the art scam, he was involved in a marijuana plantation in Western Victoria, a business that's attracted a number of prominent Calabrian gangsters. It was not a successful venture and put him off the drug business for life. Yeah, let's talk about it. Uh, how did that come about? Well, he, he just met this guy, Joe, and this guy, Joe, introduced him to a guy called Lee and Lee introduced him to a guy called Ron. I won't mention surnames. Sure. And... Um, and Ron apparently was a drug dealer and Mario suggested that they buy a farm near our at Buangor and that Ron becomes the front man, owner of the farm in his name and that he grow marijuana crops and uh, they did so and Ron was on the farm for months growing the stuff. Then eventually someone got suspicious and called the cops and they raided the farm and uh, Ron escaped and his wife was on the farm so they arrested her and uh, so Ron was on the run. And But while he was on the run, Ron and Mario were still doing drug deals. You know, they were meeting up and doing uh, just normal drug hashish and cannabis and stuff like that. So then Ron, well, then another complication happened which led to an underworld war. There was some money involved. Yeah, because Ron thought that Mario had given him $80,000 in counterfeit money. Ron was going to buy a heap of drugs and... and and Mario gave him 80000 and Ron thought the money was counterfeit. But it wasn't counterfeit. <laughs> it was real sure? money. Yeah, because I had it in my bedroom because Mario put it in my mother's house. And it was there. Like, 80000 in cash. Yeah, I said, what's that money doing? <laughs> he goes, just leave it there until I pick it up. So then he took it away. And I looked at it. It looked, looked real, the whole thing. Yeah, like 20s, 50s? No, they were mainly 50s, you know. Anyway, the next thing we know that obviously Ron, who used to smoke a lot of marijuana, he probably got delusional and he thought that they were counterfeit. And so he abducted Mario. He, he lured him to a house in Thomastown, abducted him with two gunmen and they belted the shit out of Mario, saying, where are the plates, you know? Mario said, there plates are no for the money. They, they've switched focus from the drugs to now what they think is counterfeit yeah. currency, and now, now they want the plates. Yeah, he wanted the plates, Ron, so he can make his own bloody counterfeit, he thought, you know. <laughs> the guy was mad. And so then they belted Mario, and so then they-, they What was Mario it, saying? Well, he, there's no plates. There's no plates, there's no money. There's no plates. No That's cash real here. cash, he's saying to them. You know, his left side of his face was all blood and everything, you know, because then they let him go after 24 hours- and he, he came by taxi to Borland Hotel and he, we saw him there. He was bloody, you know, then he went to the doctor and then he wanted to get revenge and then he called his crew in and then they got revenge on them. And they, so what happened next? We were in a safe house and he organised some of his crew to come over to, to find Ron because he wanted his 80000 back. See, if it was counterfeit, he wouldn't want it back. So it wasn't counterfeit, you follow? So yeah. It was real money. 
and uh, so then uh, they they went to his brother's house, who was also involved apparently because he turned up at the Thomastown place. Ron's brother's house. Yeah, Ron's brother. Yeah. So they persuaded him to give up Ron where his location. So he did. Then they dumped him at the hospital. So what? So what happened to Ron? Ron's brother, who was uh, physically assaulted. By Mario's crew. Yeah, by Mario's crew, to give up Ron, where his location. So then they dumped his brother at the hospital, at the emergency, and then they knew where Ron was. So they all went down to Footscray, to a hotel, and they cornered Ron. But they, they were going to kill him, but they didn't. Because, Why not? Oh, Mario said, you know, you know, he didn't deserve to die. Just, you know, also he wanted his money back, you know, the 80000 You won't get money from a dead man. No, that's right. So they frog-marched Ron to the car, but he managed to sort of scuffle with them, and then he, he there was a moment when he, he broke loose, so he ran for his life, and they fired shots, but they didn't kill him. And then, uh, so the next day, it was in the paper and everything, and... Yeah, so the, there was no money. He didn't. Mario didn't get his eighty thousand because Ron escaped, and he took off and disappeared. You know. Then they caught Ron two years later in Sydney, and uh, he gave up Mario at that time because he was had other charges pending. So the police made a deal with him. You can't blame Ron at this stage. He's he thinks he's been ripped off. Yeah, his well, brother's been right. bashed. He's yeah. been bashed. Yeah, it was unfor- so he gives up Mario. Yeah, it was an unfortunate thing. The whole thing it shouldn't have happened. You know, like that's stupid. It was stupid to think. You know that there was counterfeit money. It was all his uh, thinking that there was counterfeit money. He wanted to get back at Mario. He wanted the plates to make the money. You know, you know. Then um, that's how it happened. And then Ron, two years later, he gave evidence against Mario for the marijuana farm and arson because Ron was involved in an arson with Mario too. What was the arson? Oh, that was another funny thing that happened because this chemist, this chemist wanted his shop burnt so he can burn the books because he was fiddling the books. You know, like he wanted to make it look as if the books were burnt, and uh, so the, the investigators couldn't tell what was happening. You know, in the, yeah. with his uh, accounts, stock take, stock take, yeah. <laughs> But the whole shop got burnt down, but the books didn't because they were the covers protected the inside pages, so the books were still intact. The inside of the books, you know. So the, the whole no. shop, a chemist did this. A chemist wanted it done, you know. So Mario arranged it, through, and Ron went there and burnt the bloody thing, but it, unsuccessfully apparently. No good ever came between Mario and Ron, did it? Really? No, no. no. But I have to ask you, what did Mario do with the plates? I have no idea. I wish I had them. I could, <laughs> if I had them, I don't know. That didn't exist. I couldn't see any plates. I didn't find any. Mario would end up with six years jail and lose his law licence over all these capers. Enzo got pulled in over the art fraud too. He was a director of the company. And so I was charged as well and we went through a trial in the Supreme Court for a month, but I was acquitted. But he was found guilty in but he didn't get much extra on top of his sentence because he was already doing jail at the time. So the, the judge only gave him you know, three extra months on top of his six-year sentence. So you're seeing your brother in this madcap, sometimes violent, bizarre world. What are you thinking at this stage? Because you'd had your chance earlier. You could have been part of this. Yeah, well, of, of course. I mean, you know, like he wanted me to go on the mar- on the marijuana farm to, to dig the holes, you know, in Ararat. And I said, I don't want to come to... I he said they were tomatoes. He was going to dig for tomatoes. I said, look, I'm, I'm too lazy to go there to dig holes, you know, because I'm not that interested in money and that. Because I was more into, you know, philosophy and, you know, writing and all this sort of stuff. Did you see what was coming? Although there was one moment in the art business where the policeman said to you, Enzo, 
I don't think you're as innocent as you seem. Yeah, you're not as innocent as you look. And were you? I was innocent. You were? Yes. Okay. I had no idea about this art print fraud thing. You know, he just said, sign here, you'll become a director because I can't trust anybody else. Otherwise, if I get some stranger as a director, he's entitled to 50% of the two million. But with you, I know that you're not interested in money, so you're not going to challenge me for the two million, are you? And I said, of course not. Just give me, you know, 20000 that'll be okay if you ever... You're interested in a little bit of money. Yeah, just a little bit, just to keep me going for a year or two, you know, because I'm not greedy and I don't want uh, possessions. You know, I'm not opulent. I'm not opulent, you know, things like that. Right. You had a decision to make, though, didn't you? I mean, you could have... Oh, yeah. yeah. I was easy to make, to get in into it and, and become an operative in his group and, and make a lot of money. Oh, yeah, I could have made heaps, you know. So then he learned his lesson after that thing with, with Ron... Never to get involved with drugs again because the consequences are too dangerous and also the, the jail sentences are too long. And Ron's an idiot. Yeah, exactly. We're <laughs> over. So, you know, and it gets violent then and then you've got to sort of retaliate and, and all this sort of, yeah, he never wanted, he because always wanted he, peace. He did confide in me that he wasn't that flash on violence. He didn't like the sight of blood. No, well, he, yeah, no one does, I suppose. But Some he, of these people do, by the way. Yeah, I know, but they're psychopaths, you know. But Mario wasn't, he was antisocial, Mario, but he wasn't, psychotic, you know, like uh, he was reasonable, you know, you could reason with him. But if it had need be, he would use violence or retaliation or, you know, to to stop further violence. Yeah, you know? there was one story about how he tried to have a man murdered, but it went wrong where the assassin used a shotgun, the oh, guy was yeah. in bed, yeah, yeah. and they shot him in the bed through the, the eider down and the Pellets went into him, they're embedded with feathers all around them. Yeah, yeah. And he survived. Was, yeah. That was a guy called, uh, who was shot back then, yeah. This guy called did it and he confessed to it back then. But uh, apparently was supposed to um, go there and just frighten him, but something went wrong or something, you know, and the gun discharged or I don't know, but it's a dangerous game. Over the 1980s and 90s, Mario concentrated on developing his ties with the Calabrian Mafia. So he was the local arm of the Mafia here. Yeah, you could say that in a way. Like, you know, he's very highly connected to the Italian mob in Calabria because he had the Condello name, you know, and they trusted him and uh, he was held in high esteem, you know, very high esteem by the mob in Italy to here. uh, So I guess Mario could cast a long shadow here in Melbourne mm. with his connections back in Italy. Oh, yeah, 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 big time. And he could, you know, order anything. Like, you know, if he wanted to set up importation, which he didn't, like cocaine, he could easily do that through through his Condello clans there and everything. And he was able to, um, I think he was doing money laundering too for them, you know. But anyway, he 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 studied law, and uh, then he got involved with uh, Calabrians in Melbourne, and then uh, he got involved with uh, oh, even you know people like Trimboli and uh, came to his office back in those days. You know, Robert Trimboli was another Calabrian born in Australia. He built a cannabis empire from his hometown in Griffith, New South Wales. He was alleged to have ordered the murder of anti-drugs campaigner Donald McKay. Trimboli died on the run in Spain in 1987. Mario was moving in very heavy circles. You know, other people from interstate and... Because he was sort of known, you know, he was, had the name and everything. And then he also, during that time, he also did his own businesses, you know, protection. And this was a, apart from his law practice. His law practice was just a front. Was it? Yeah. There weren't little old ladies sitting out there trying to get their... 
conveyancing done no, or anything? No, there were. He just sort of did, those? It, did it for nothing. He used to do a lot of stuff for nothing for them, you know, because he was making his money elsewhere. In 2002, Mario Condello turned 50 and had become the essential Melbourne mafiosi. Staunch and trustworthy, he was respected and had a network second to none. His days of violence were behind him. Peace was much better for the kind of business that Mario liked. He refused to be involved in drugs, but didn't mind laundering the profits of those that were. Fast fortunes were being made and everybody wanted their share, Mario included. At 50, Mario felt he was in a good place, almost untouchable. In reality, everything was about to fall apart as greed spawned a vicious gangland war. In June 2004, when I met Mario, an upstart from the western suburbs wanted him dead. Carl Williams was everything that Condello despised, a drug trafficker surrounded by faithless henchmen and police informers, willing to do anything for a dollar. The Williams team was winning Melbourne's gangland war, if you could call it a war. Only one side was shooting, for the most part. Condello's Carlton crew had been decimated in a series of public executions since the year 2000. In early 2004, Condello stepped up to the leadership and laid plans to retaliate. Williams became obsessed with Mario and would talk to me on the phone about this and say, what's this Mario up to? He thinks he's a big mafia guy, you know, tell me about his routines. Trying to find out a lot about him at different times from me. I didn't know much. And at the same time, Mario was, in my conversations with him, he was trying to be a peacemaker. Yeah, that's right. He He wanted to bring peace. That's what he was telling me all the time. He says, you know, like, well, what is Williams doing? You know, the guy's mad. We just want peace to be left alone and do our business and just he can go his way and we go our way. You know, what's the problem? But no, he, he became paranoid and, uh, you know, he thought that they were going to wipe Williams out, but they weren't going to wipe him out. He can just do whatever he wants for his own business and let's leave us alone, you know. Events unfolded quickly in early 2004. In March, Carl's top hitman, Andrew Venuman, died in a tussle with Carlton crew elder Mick Gatto. The killing was proven to be self-defence, but Gatto spent more than a year behind bars before his trial. Then after Venuman died, was killed, then Mara was on his own, basically, with a few others. Because Mick, Mick Gatto was in, was in jail? In jail. So then Murray had to sort of watch himself and... Uh, and he didn't know what was going to happen at that stage, but he suspected he was sort of taking protection for himself. Then he found out that a contract had been done with uh, Lewis Kane to kill Mario. Lewis Kane was a gun for hire who was close to Carl Williams. The guys who were engaged by Williams, they were friends of Mario. They knew Mario, so they told Mario that there was a contract Williams had put on him. So then Mario sort of, I think he upped the price. And these guys apparently... Allegedly, he killed Lewis Kane on behalf of for Mario, you know. In May 2004, Lewis Kane was shot dead before he could get to Mario on behalf of Carl. But Carl had a backup plan. On June 9, three hitmen were intercepted by police near Condello's Bayside home. Ten minutes later, Williams was arrested across town at his mum's house. So, yeah. That was a dramatic morning. That one, in fact, that morning. I had a cover in the bulletin, uh, included Mario and so forth. And Oh, yeah, I remember that. I actually called him to tell him, to ask him what had happened at his house. And I don't, I'm not sure that he was aware of it at that time because he was busy shouting at me about the, the story in the bulletin. And I said, do you, do you know what's happened at your house this morning? He said, whether he was being cagey or he didn't know, I'm not sure. 
you spoke to him that morning? Uh, no, I spoke to him the, the day after. You know, he said, I, everything's okay. He said, you know, I said, oh, gee, they're trying to kill you again. You know, I said, look, you should take off and go for a holiday, you know, leave the country, you know, just go away for a while. He said, ah, oh, yeah, don't worry, it's okay. You know, I wish he'd had, had taken off because he could have just gone to Italy for a few years, you know, things would have settled down maybe, you know. When I interviewed Condolo after the failed hit, he was triumphant. As far as he was concerned, the war was over and his side had prevailed. Now everyone could get back to business, he declared. He told me, for the first time I've heard some birds singing in the trees. So let's hope those birds continue to sing, because after all, we're not going to be here forever, you know. Sadly for Mario, one of the singing birds was a police informer in his ranks, and by the end of the week, he was behind bars too, charged with plotting to murder Williams. According to the police, Mario had offered $450,000 for a hit on Carl, his wife Roberta and father George. The killings were to take place in the lobby bar of the Marriott Hotel in Melbourne CBD, the very place where I'd been meeting Carl at this time, as Carl reminded me in a letter from jail. Hey buddy, lucky you never got shot with me at the Marriott. I would have jumped in front of you anyway. But we live another day. Every day above ground is a good day. Enzo believes I was in no danger for Mario's hitman at the Marriott. He says the would-be killer had set out to entrap his brother on behalf of the police. This guy, he was working with the police because he had drug charges and he taped Mario. He taped conversations they were having. But Mario didn't actually admit, go and kill the guy. He was playing a cat and mouse game with this guy as well. So anyway, they charged Mario with conspiracy of murder, so he went to jail for nine months in solitary. He didn't like it. Oh, no, he didn't like it. It was solitary, you know, 24 hours virtually on your own, you know. But he survived it. The guy could survive anything. You know, he was very staunch, Mario, very staunch. He would never give anybody up. Never, never. No way in the world. And he could have at that moment. Oh, yeah, he could have. He was under pressure to do so. Yeah, yeah, but he wouldn't. You know, he just started to get stuffed, you know. Like, uh, he, he would never betray anyone like that, never. Mario was able to get bail on medical grounds. He was suffering migraine headaches, much to the scorn of Carl. Oh, he has a headache. Why doesn't he just see a doctor? I've never seen on Panadol packets, if pain persists, go for bail. It says, if pain persists, see a doctor. Mario was free as his rival waited in prison for the day a judge would give him a sentence of 35 years. Mario was confident of beating his charges and life could go on. On February 6, 2006, the night before his trial was set to begin, Mario was brutally murdered after pulling into his garage at home. It's accepted that the killer was Rodney Earl Collins, one of Carl's assassins. But some still claim, with no evidence, that the hit was mafia-related. Did he see it coming at all? No, no. Although he did three months earlier, he said, he asked me, do you think that my life's in danger? This was three months before he was murdered. We were in the kitchen in, the, in my mother's house and, and I said, well, it looks like it's over, you know, because, uh, you know, like it's been over a year and a half. One time he, he said we were at his house in Brighton, he was having a barbecue in the backyard and we were having a barbecue and he said, how do you like this? Someone's after me trying to kill me and here I am having a barbecue in the backyard. You know? <laughs> he said, the contradictions. But he had some suspicion, you know, it wasn't totally over yet, you know. So where were you when you heard the news? I was at home in North Fitzroy and uh, his wife rang me up 
at 10 o'clock or something, and she said, oh, the worst thing has happened. I said, oh, God, no, don't tell me they got Mario. And she goes, yes, he's in the garage, you know. So I said, oh, it's, oh, it's terrible, you know, terrible. I was so shocked. It was just unbelievable. It was, it was, it was a huge shock, you know. But anyway, that's the way it went, you know. How's his family cope with Yeah, that? they're all right, you know. They're just going along, you know. They're not bad. Are they avoiding the same mistakes that Mario yeah, made? Yeah, they, the kids are doing okay. They, they've got normal jobs, you know, and they won't get involved in those things. They've learned from what happened to his father, you know, their father. But uh, I'm sure if Mario, it was, if he was given a second chance and knowing what was going to happen... You don't know what decisions they're going to make, choices. Would they make the same choice? I think he would. Yeah, it's it's something in them. that The thing is that they never think that anything bad is going to happen. They can't see consequences. You know, they think, oh, no, we're going to avoid that consequence. It's not going to happen to us. But, you know, it does, you know, eventually, you know, it catches up. And I think possibly Mario was very intelligent, possibly a little too smart for his own good. Yeah, he was sometimes he was a bit uh, overreaching, it's called, where you overreach yourself, like Macbeth, you know, in, in Shakespeare. He had a chance to become, if he just waited patiently, but no, he had to overreach and kill the, the king to, to take over the crown. And therefore, as a consequence, you know, he got into disaster. Yeah, you, you just got to not overreach. You just got to stay within your own limits. As Dirty Harry said, remember, a man's got to know his limitations, you know. Mario didn't know his. Well, he was a bit over the limit, you know. But I think it was a cultural thing too, you know what I mean? Like uh, he was involved in that whole mafia thing. It was a cultural. It was like on a treadmill. Yeah. I thought that he quite enjoyed being a gangster and having that image and having that respect and authority. Yeah, I think he did. But I think it got to him, you know, later, you know, the pressure of it. And um, I think he was torn between two things, you know, whether to sort of lead a normal, more normal life or to get more involved. But I think once he was that involved and that into it, it was very hard to sort of get out, you know, because it got pretty, uh, you know, sinister towards the end, the whole thing. It became very uh, sinister and um, tragic, you know. What's the moral in all this? I mean, you're a writer now. Yeah, And, yeah. and you write historical... Plays, yeah. You write plays. Yeah, yeah. Right, historical I mean, is there a, I mean, I think it's a great opera in Mario, Rocco, Condello. Oh, yeah, yeah, make a rock opera. You know, they yeah. usually make rock operas. You know, yeah. it could be, call it Mario or something, and bring in all the band and all the intrigue and, you know, there's a lot of drama, a lot of drama. He's a fair bit of comedy too. And comedy, yeah. He's, he was a comical bloke. And you wonder what information Mario took to the grave. Oh, yeah, he would have had a lot. I think we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on Real Crime on Listener Podcast. It's a pleasure and an honour to be here. The producer was Sarah Grinberg. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer, Grant Totter. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.